and you're listening to Band Together, a podcast that explores the power of music and storytelling in the climate movement. I want to start with a mention that this episode was recorded before many aspects of our daily lives were impacted by COVID-19. I still want to share this interview with you all because I think many of the things that Benji and I talked about carry important lessons for all of us learning to navigate this challenging time. Especially now, we can still find time to get outside, whether it's walking down your block or finding a local park. I want to recognize the parallels between the COVID-19 pandemic and the climate crisis, that rapid and community-wide responses are necessary to address these issues and meet the scale of the problem, but also that music and stories can provide a much-needed break from the news and can act as a source of healing and relaxation during this time. We appreciate your support of our podcast and hope to continue to provide content and opportunities to engage virtually, so thank you for listening. And now let's dig into the episode. This month, we're diving into the importance of place and our natural systems as a source of inspiration, reconnection, and healing. First up is our current climate, so let's dig into some of the climate news from this past month. Research out of San Jose State University is claiming that climate education has shown to reduce individual carbon emissions. While many people don't think about education as a solution to climate change, it can have a lasting impact. Similarly, Project Drawdown, a comprehensive plan of solutions to climate change, listed educating girls as the sixth best solution out of 80 named in the analysis in reversing global warming. Early in February, Esperanza, Argentina's research station in the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, reached 64.9 degrees Fahrenheit, breaking the previous record of 63 degrees Fahrenheit in March 2015. Antarctica's ice sheet, which is nearly three miles thick, contains 90% of the world's fresh water. Scientists warn that while this is foreshadowing of what's to come, it's exactly in line with what they have been observing for decades. The Guardian has become the first major global news organization to ban advertising from oil and gas companies. This follows their initiatives to increase reporting on the climate crisis and reduce their own carbon footprint. This decision also falls in line with The Guardian's own reporting that lobbying by energy companies has explicitly harmed the environmental cause. And lastly, Greta Thunberg, a 17-year-old climate activist from Sweden, was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in February for the second year in a row. Thunberg is widely known for her strikes with the Fridays for Future movement and her powerful speeches around the world advocating for climate action. Up next, I'm excited to share my interview with Benji from the group Slender Bodies. This California-based duo met while attending university and came together as a creative force three years later. Their most recent album, Como Rebi, was released in September of 2019. So enjoy. Well, thanks so much, Benji, for joining me on the podcast. Cool. Well, I mean, it's perfect timing if it's a start for you guys as a podcast because I think it's like a start for us, like really getting into talking about climate change and as like as like a band, mm-hmm. figure out like our personal place and that like what we do as individuals is also like what we do as like a project. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm wondering if, just to start off, if you could tell me a little bit about Slender Bodies and your music. I'm in a band called Slender Bodies, and it started in 2016 as like kind of a passion project between myself and Max. This is a creative haven for us to just say, this is the project where we can do everything we want to do. It's where we can kind of speak to our strengths, um, which is we're both guitarists. We're both what we like to call serial songwriters. So we'll just write song after song after song. 
and we're both, you know, we're both singers. Max will do primary vocals, but you know, singing has always been a passion of mine as well. So it's, it's a, it's always a good time in the studio to be able to communicate in that way between each other. It's pretty synergistic, I guess, if I'm going to use like a weird, like business word, it's a project that's always been rooted in our friendship and been rooted in our creativity between the two of us. So it's indie pop. It's got, it's always got this like dance and movability to it, but it's also like very relaxing and, um, chilling we've been signed for a little over a year we've been on about five or six tours now and so we're kind of just like jumping into like you know the next chapter of our careers we like to call like Homer Abbey, which is the album we just put out was like that was the end of like the first chapter in our book yeah and you guys are based in california right yeah so i'm from a little town called half Moon bay um which is about 45 minutes south of san francisco i've lived in california my whole life mm-hmm. and max is from la proper so uh, we met in santa cruz which is a very very like kind of climate or environmentalist like centric place all of california is for the most part i'd like yeah. to say and so it's it's been interesting having that journey too and kind of exploring more of our own state as we like dive as we dive further into music mm-hmm. your album artwork and it, it really evokes the like thinking of trees and nature and some of those landscapes do you feel like being in california has influenced your music Absolutely. I mean, the whole last album is Komorebi is a, it's a Japanese word that doesn't have a direct English translation. It basically is a word for when sunlight streams through the trees and you get those kind of like those rays that pass through because of, you know, dust or moisture or whatever, or like that dappled sunlight that cuts through. So that record is all inspired by nature. We wrote it in a cabin in a wood in the woods in 10 days. And so We've always grown, I, I grew up super close to nature. I lived on my best friend's farm for on and off for like two years. And so it's always been an important part of our life. And so, um, especially living in like a rural community, like on the weekends, like I wasn't going to like malls or like the movies, I was going <laughs> to like the beach or yeah. like just getting lost in the woods for hours. And so in that way, I think it's like definitely still like my happy place. And it's something I return to all the time for energy. It's not something I'm very far from at any time. So it's definitely part of our music. And I think that that's why, you know, as we move farther into our career and it's more about like, okay, like we know the sound, we know the landscape that we're sitting on for where we want to go and what we want to do. How do we want to involve, like, what do we want to use the voice for? Like, what do we want to speak for? And a lot of it's mm-hmm. the environment. And that's, you know, that's why I'm stoked to be on this podcast. Yeah. Are there any like specific places that stand out in your mind that are like really rooted in for you um, personally, or just like rooted in the album? Um, definitely the Redwoods as a whole. That's what I grew up next to. Avon Bay is an interesting place because it's it, like encapsulate Mavericks, which is one of the best surfing spots in the world. So the beach is obviously an, an integral part of growing up there, but you're always 20 minute drive from just being in some of the tallest trees in the world in the Redwoods and the coastal forest. So that dichotomy and those kind of two opposing forces, not opposing forces, I guess they like work with and for each other, but mm-hmm. um, that's been always something that I've been drawn to. Yeah. So the redwoods and the ocean is at the spot. Yeah, absolutely. I, I grew up on the East Coast, so definitely I feel that for the ocean. But the one time I've been to California, I just remember like looking up at the trees and the power of like how big they are is so mm-hmm. cool. And like you really feel that it's like it's amazing to be there. So they're so huge and they're so much older than we are. And they've just like seen so much. Really curious about your most recent album, Coma Rebi. So you guys were in a cabin to record that for 10 days. Mm-hmm. How does your like relationship with nature or natural places influence like specific sound of your music or the creative process that you go through to create music? I mean, I think that that record specifically, it was really fun because in this cabin, we were using the sounds from the cabin. So, you know, in in the last track, Hearth, like there's the sound of the rain and the wind. 
in other parts of it, like we would sample like sticks breaking in the forest or like stuff around this cabin of like lighting the fire, or, like playing with matchsticks or whatever. So in that way, the space was definitely, it was, I mean, it's part of the sonics of the record. But I think on a more like, I guess, spiritual, if you want to call it tip, it's just like immersing yourself in nature. I think that it, it just felt bigger than just the two of us. I think it, it mm. felt like we were, yeah, just connected with something bigger because like we were in this like huge redwood forest, just like plop in the center of it. And like there's living things all around you, but there's not much like human life, if that makes sense. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. a very densely populated area. In that sense, it felt more, yeah, just like back back to the earth in a way, but also just like massively inspiring and like, like, and, like offered a, a sense of peace while also offering like energy because we would, we would basically like get up in the morning, like grab our acoustic guitars, like walk out in the woods and like jam out there for like an hour or two. So that was a, just like a massively freeing kind of pro- process, like almost like a Walden-esque album, album yeah. session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something I'd like to do more often. I mean, this, the, the next set of music that we're putting out was written all over the world. Like part of it was written in like a hotel in Berlin. Part of it was written in, in Florida at a festival. And like part of it was written, you know, when we were staying at the beach and Airbnb and that's, that's interesting. Aside, but I really enjoyed being like just isolated in the woods writing music because of how much it bled into the music itself that was all about like natural tones and like kind of trying to capture like this organic feel to it all Mm -hmm. this podcast is all about looking at the power of music and storytelling to influence social movements and that's something that i'm i'm really interested in thinking about um specifically for the climate movement do you remember when you first started thinking about climate change or first learned about climate change i mean i think like if i'm being completely truthful i started like really thinking about it when i was a kid when an inconvenient truth came out the Mm -hmm. al gore documentary yeah (laughs) Um, up until that point like my naivete to like the changing planet in general had been kept you know minus like social issues and political issues that had happened so when that documentary came out like i i don't think we watched it in school but i think they held it like a community showing for it in my town and so my mom and i went and so that was like my first introduction to it. It was interesting because, you know, it talked a lot about like the consequences and like what's happening, like, oh, the ice caps are melting, like water levels are going to rise mm-hmm. and all this stuff. But what that documentary doesn't talk about, and I haven't seen it since I first saw it, admittedly, but it doesn't talk about, about like, what can you do? It's just like all this bad mm-hmm. shit is going to happen if we don't like do something. Right. Um, that's, that, that's what I remember the takeaway being like. But what was interesting was when I saw that documentary, like I was in a place where, you know, being close to Halfway Bay specifically, there's a lot of agriculture that is sustainable. So it was cool to be around people who were like already composting, you know, like using their chickens to like help compost and like to like grow their crops and like turn the soil and make new soil and stuff. And so I didn't know that those things were something that everybody should be doing, but it was as I grew older and kind of like grew into like thinking about climate change more, it was need to be like oh like I know people who have already been doing this mm-hmm. and also made it so I was in a bit of a bubble and I was like okay well like people here are doing it so I'm like I'm sure other people around the country are and it's like it's a rude awakening to 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 know that's not the case right yeah I think it's really powerful I mean it's so important for us to have those examples of solutions too because if you only talk about the impacts all the time it's super overwhelming and no no one's going to know how to how to get involved there so it's it's cool that you can find those ties to things that are happening in your own community as a you know global community or even like national community down to just like local communities when you talk about it it's i think people have to be able to face the consequences directly but they also have to have solutions you know watch some different documentaries recently and one of them basically said people 
are most likely to change if they have a viable option that's be- like mutually beneficial in terms of like it's beneficial for them and it's beneficial for the environment because right. especially in communities around the world that are like disadvantaged or in a space that like isn't as prosperous it's they're, they're not going to shift their way of life necessarily um for the environment unless it's going to be like better for them and better for the environment you know mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's an interesting concept. And I think that really applies to everybody. I think it's like, it's got to like either be like a net zero where either the same effort or easier than what, the, than what people have already been doing. And then they're likely to change. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have to find that. Yeah. You have to find that connection to their own lives too. If they don't see climate change impacting them or if they don't see solutions benefiting them, then what's their motivation to get involved in the first place too. Yeah. Uh, connection to place is really important and people feel really rooted in that in terms of inspiration for their stories or music. Do you feel like you have seen impacts of climate change where you are either in California or through touring or other ways? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, just last year, the campfire was nuts. I mean, I was wearing masks for two weeks in my house and, you know, the year before that, or a couple of years before that, there was the the fire up in Sonoma County where, you know, a bunch like my family was in distress and like, they didn't lose their homes luckily, but like we knew people who did. Mm-hmm. So like you were definitely noticing the effects there. Like shit's just like on fire and it's like summers are like late summer, early fall is like pretty scary now. Yeah. And beaches aren't as clean and the water levels, like I, I was just talking to someone today and I was like, yeah, I looked up this map where basically it's, you know, with that, like that huge sheet that just fell into um, the middle of the Arctic Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of, we're scientists were just like, Ooh, like, mm, like that's a, that's a big one. Like that's going to make water levels rise as like this sheet and like what it was supporting basically like falls further into the ocean. And so I just look at all these things and it's like these tiny changes where it just like, it didn't used to be like that at all. And you know, there's not like agricultural strain, but I think that's because in a lot of ways we, we've just like, you know, we've just like technologyed our way through that so far, but I think there, there will definitely be some slim pickings further on on down the line here at the end of the day you know i think when when stuff is put onto like the national national or even like you know regional news cycle it's like this is happening right now but i think that in the same way it's like it like the conversation about climate change has to be normalized like when we heard about the campfires or you know the fires in australia too it's like the people matter so much like send them resources we need to send them food we need to like find places for them to stay we need to do all these things we need to take care you know of our community of of our of our of humanity right mm-hmm. at the same time like what should go hand in hand with that is conversation about climate change because when you know like all of australia is like just up in flame that has huge implications for the co2 levels you know when this is happening in california like that has huge Im- implications for water viability as like stuff like sinks into you know groundwater and stuff like that but yeah i think that we want to take care of our, com- our community whether it's you know regional national or global like totally like that should absolutely be a priority i think it should just be a shared priority with like talking about the environment because if we don't talk about the environment we're just like it's just it's just going to get worse it's just going to be like more people to take care of Mm -hmm. so thunderbodies went on a tour last fall where you worked with cliff green note to help uh, reduce single-use plastic on your tour right and had local nonprofits table mm-hmm. what was it like to have that element of the tour for you and were there any like challenges or surprises that came out of that 
it was great, but if I'm being absolutely truthful, I wish we had been more involved. I wish mm-hmm. that there had been more of a focus put on it. And this is like a, a very honest thing. Like I'm so grateful, yeah. grateful for Green Nuts and like they, they did an amazing job of like getting like really amazing partners out. But as a band, especially as a person, like I w- like I felt like pretty responsible because I was the one who pushed to have charities and like an impact on the road. And like I wasn't up there like talking about them every night. And so I wish that that's something that like I've done. Like that's what I'm kind of endeavoring to do on this tour mm-hmm. again. Because it's it's one thing to have them there, and I think that people, you know, they were, I think, talking to folks, but it really was so important that they were like, you know, they helped us, like, all have reusable water bottles, and, like, they helped us, you know, they gave us, like, silverware to eat on the road, and, like, they did all these things that, like, made us truly sustainable as, like, a mobile unit, and they also were there giving out information in places that maybe wouldn't have had access to that before, so it was wonderful, and I think they did an amazing job. I think that us as a group, if I'm being honest, like, I think it was, like, neat that we did that, but I think that we would want to get more involved, you know, when, if when we did it again, do it again. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I love that, that you're you're thinking about how you can speak up. What do you envision as ways that you can bring that more to the forefront of your tour next time? Like I said, I think, you know, a quick bit about it on stage is just, like, it's kind of necessary. I think if you're, like, if you're partnering with somebody for something like that, it, it makes it all worth it. And, you know, it's something that I'm, I've been thinking about like personally in my life, how I want to do it. And also Max and I have been talking about it a ton. And I think that it's something where it's like, just plan more in advance and like open up discussion. Cause there's a level at which like, you know, how do you balance an extraneous mission that like, you know, climate change activism with music? Because I think, especially for us, like so many people have told us your music is where I go when I don't want to deal with things or like when I want to just experience something, I want to like do yoga or relax. And like, in a way it's that for us too. It's a place where, like I said, it's a creative haven where we escape to. And sometimes we, you know, escape to it to like sing or talk about problems that we have in our personal lives or in in the world. But um, more often than not, the creative process itself is therapeutic. So honestly, like, I, I don't know if I have a good solid answer for that, but I, I think that regular discussion or just something where it's like a choice for people to engage in if they want to, because we're not out here trying to like push it on everybody. Like I'm not out here trying to like preach it all the time. Right. I'm out here to say, this is what we're doing. This is stuff we're really interested in. If that's interesting for you too, like come join us. Like, we're happy to have you. Like, here's like all the resources, like talk to us regularly about it. If you're not like, I'm not going to jam it down your throat, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any like fears or hesitations about speaking out about climate change publicly to your fan base? Not except to like, I don't want to, we don't want to, I don't think we don't want to like endanger the safe space that we create with music. I think that's the only thing. Like I'm not on like a political tip. Like I'm not really worried about people being like, Oh man, like, you know, I don't really believe in climate change and like these guys do, like, I'm not like, I'm not going to listen to their music anymore. Like that, that doesn't really worry me. I think that relatively confident that we're at a place where people will at least entertain the thought of being more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that worries me the most is definitely like, do people even want to hear this from a band? Yeah. And if they don't like fair enough, like that's totally their decision. That's, I think it's all about giving people choices. We were just talking to um, Sheila from Habits of Waste and they're an LA based nonprofit and they do a lot of stuff to make like delivery services like uber eats and and postmates like plastic free and so we're talking to her Mm -hmm. about like stuff we can do together and she was like basically like we want to give people the choice we want to give people the choice to say yeah i really need the plastic fork right now or like i don't need it right now and they at least have the choice to be sustainable because sometimes like you know it it really does enhance how that convenience that moment and i think that 
we want to take a similar approach. We want to give people a choice to engage with the dialogue of climate change and environmental activism, not to like jam it on them as like a package deal with their music. Yeah. Well, I really like what you said, not, not worried about how people receive you, but like thinking about that tie to climate change in music because it's not obvious necessarily for people. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I thought was really interesting that we found from our concert that we had in November was, so we worked with a bunch of the artists that were there and helped them come up with a short climate story that was just based off of their personal experiences or their feelings about how they were thinking about climate change. And we worked with them to, to coach them on their story that they would actually share on stage at the concert. And it was really interesting to see that a lot of them have you know been performing for years and so felt really comfortable being on stage and sharing their music but the part that they felt nervous about was sharing their climate story and I can totally empathize with that yeah Yeah. and it's like it can be personal and if you're not used to talking about that then uh, you know clearly it makes sense that that can be something that's nerve-wracking but I, I think also something that's really powerful about storytelling in the frame of how we talk about climate change is that people can't you know, sharing your story, no one, no one can say that, you know, what you experienced is wrong or, or not true, or that like your feelings are invalid because it's a, you know, it's a personal story that you're sharing. And so I think it's a really unique way to one kind of connect with an audience because you are sharing about yourself, but two, it's a really powerful way to talk about an issue that people might find challenging to engage with or challenging to like bring into their own lives too. Definitely. I mean, I think that also being from like a perspective of performing musician it's like i'm pretty comfortable up on stage but when it comes it's almost like sharing personal stories like through music is comfortable all day but as soon as you strip the music away and it's just like the words it it gets a little more nerve-wracking for sure (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i think it's also something that's like important because it shows i mean i think it's always important to show people that vulnerability is okay i think that's like one of the things that goes hand in hand with any type of activism is showing people that vulnerability is like an okay thing and also that it's like pretty okay to be uncomfortable and on either side absolutely of an issue yeah and that you can like speak out about an issue without needing to know like everything about it you don't have to have all the facts to get up on stage and talk about climate change or talk about sustainability yeah especially with you know in most of your conversation of like this is how it affected me because i think that's what's gonna i mean that's what draws people together like i I was just thinking about this before we got on the call it's like i remember the straw the straw ban happening and everyone Mm -hmm. could not like stop talking about the turtles and like tight like if that's if that's the thing that gets people to start using more you know aluminum straws or wooden straws that's amazing but i think that again tying the consequence to it whether it's someone's personal anecdote um is absolutely crucial or if you know just learning it for your for your own life i mean i think if people like if we didn't have landfills like all of a sudden like every landfill in the united states like shut down and people just and the government was like yo start like figure it out like start figuring out with your trash like people would lose it people wouldn't know what to do and then there would be a small group of people who would be like yeah like we'll help you compost and like all this plastic like I guess we'll figure out like how to get trucks and like take this to like a recycle facility. Like it would happen, but it would make it such a more real issue for people and people would stop buying things that are single use. You know, the luxury of separation from our waste specifically, I mean, this is like kind of a tangent example, but separation from consequences, I think leads to not necessarily apathy, but maybe naivety. Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, that separation of like, if you don't feel like you see the impacts every day, then you're not going to, it's not going to be something that's like something that you're thinking about. And I think that's where the conversation piece comes in too. Like the more we can just normalize bringing climate change into topics of conversation that aren't just about science that are incorporate music or art, or I think that'll just normalize the conversation more and, and bring them those issues up more prominently than, than just in, a, you know, confined to a specific sector yeah, I mean, and also just in talking with you now, it's like it gives me a lot of ideas. I think it needs to be in casual conversation. I think that that's like a, a role that maybe more, you know, bands and artists need to fit that mold, take it to a casual place so that serious conversations can happen. And yeah. so I don't know. I, I think I think you put it really well. I think normalizing it is a really good way to, to put it. Yeah, I guess as someone who's in that artist sphere, what do you think is like a role that musicians and artists can play in social movements like the climate movement? Like, is there a unique position that artists hold that could help us build momentum or help bring in a new perspective? I mean, I've always, you know, my mom had me growing up, like listening to like Paul Simon and Bob Dylan and a lot of people who were activists like in their careers and so I think that I definitely see musicians as like you have a platform like you have a voice like it's almost like more obligation to to use that like that's that's a social currency you hold and if you don't use that for the power of good like and this is totally this is totally a personal opinion my opinion is my own it doesn't reflect like the opinion of like our team as a whole but Mm -hmm. I think that it's really important to use your voice to speak out for things and like be an advocate of stuff it doesn't mean you have to fight against stuff but you can be an advocate of positive change in a really passionate way Mm -hmm. I think that's the role it's like you know making music is really lovely and it is definitely enough to just make music and to like provide people solace and like a place for their feelings and Mm -hmm. what they're going through and that is an amazing amazing gift but just personally I believe that if you can do more like do more like you know some would say like we only got one shot at existing here in this together right yeah how do you think we could get more artists talking about climate change I don't know. <laughs> I think it's. I think. I think it's got to be like a like a herd mentality thing. I heard something interesting recently, which I, I don't know if I completely agree with, but I think it's like you know, peer pressure for the power of good. It's like <laughs> if you can if you can just like start everybody. If you can start like a few people talking about it consistently, and then like, how do you like how do you make yeah like discussing change hip and cool basically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how do you make that trendy? I think that we're. And again, this is a personal thing. I think that we're reaching a point where we're, as a, especially like younger generations, we're, we're getting to the point of like being past like the consumerism mindset of just like, oh, if I have like the car or like the world travel, like, or the chains or whatever, like I'll, I'll be happy. And like, I think that if you like that, that was made hip for a long time because of, you know, the business happening in our, in America specifically, if you make the hip thing, like helping others and helping your community like that's what's that's what's powerful and i think that people will gravitate towards that and there's so many people out there doing it too there's so many people who are out there like advocating simply through action in their own lives and i think that like artists like and talking about really important stuff like like a band that i would really look up to is um, rainbow kitten surprise i think that they do it really well like painkillers about the opiate crisis and like massively important song but, you know, they're not afraid to talk about that type of stuff. And there's so many other artists who, like, aren't afraid. And I think that it's just going to, like, reach critical mass. Like, more, more people are going to do it. More people are connect with it. And people just want to, like, they want a sense of something real. And so I think it's just going to continue. But I don't, I don't know what you would do to, like, kickstart it to, like, happen more often outside of just, like, you know, as an artist myself to, like, to take that matter into my own hands and be like, I'm just going to start talking about this more. Like, that's yeah. what it comes down to. 
Yeah. I think what it comes down to is interacting with people like you who are passionate, who say like, Hey, whoever, like, what if you just like talked about this more? Like mm-hmm. that's what, that's what makes a difference. Yeah. I recently heard someone say they were like struggling with feeling like if you just lead by example, like sometimes people don't always just follow your example. You just kind of go off and do your own thing. And they're like, what if instead we lead by invitation? So it's not preaching to people. It's not forcing your opinions on them, but extending an invitation for them to like join you in something. And in that way we can grow our movement, but also in a way that feels organic and authentic and not like you're pushing someone to do something that they're, they're not comfortable with too. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, human beings strive for community. That's what we want so badly. I think that's a a really great point is, you know, how, if you can make it more like we're going to do this together and like you and I are going to feel bonded as we do this thing together, that's going to make a difference in a way, like on a very primitive human brain level that incentivizes them because they want the chemical release from feeling that social connection. So Mm -hmm. if you say like, yeah, let's do this together, then like it, it does incentivize it. I think to believe in that you're in something with other people or with all people is one of the most powerful things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and we need our communities too. Like we can't, we can't have a few people who are going off and saving the world on their own. Like we need, we need mm-hmm. to all be in this together too. So. Yeah, that's, that's a really, that's a really good point. Lead by example, but also do so with like an open hand, like an invitation. I think mm-hmm. that's a really, really fair point. Okay. And then this question I'm, I've been asking everyone that we've been interviewing for the podcast. Um, so in the climate science world, a lot of people have been saying that the next decades, the next 10 years are really critical for us to really turn things around and massively scale up climate action that we're taking and engage in solutions. And this is a really big opportunity, um, but also challenge for us to take on in the next 10 years. So thinking about decades as ways to break up time, like if you could envision a future, what does the next 10 years look like for you? However broad or (laughs) narrow you want to answer that question. I'm a pretty broad, broad strokes person. I try not to like expect too much, mm-hmm. but also just be like really happy for the things that do happen. But with that said, I mean, I think the next 10 years, like going to make a ton more music, probably I, I hope like settle down, like have like a nice little house of my own and get involved more with activism. I think those are like the broad, the broad scopes goals and hopefully do that. All those things on a pretty grand scale. That's like the, the big goal is just like do to do all those things, but really, really do them really hard, you know? After talking with Benji, I was really interested in learning not only about some of the natural places that serve as inspiration for music, but also as powerful solutions to climate change. To find out more, I had a conversation with Caitlin Potter. She's the Education and Community Engagement Coordinator at Cedar Creek Ecosystem Reserve, a biological field station run out of the University of Minnesota. At Cedar Creek, they conduct experiments considering long-term consequences of human-driven environmental changes, and also have programs to help educate the public and grow our connection to natural systems. I'm Caitlin Barali potter I run the Education and Community Engagement Programs at Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve. Cedar Creek is a University of Minnesota biological field station, so for the last Almost 80 years, um, since the late 1930s and early 1940s, scientists have been working at this facility in East Central Minnesota to try and understand the world around us. That's involved studying our lakes, 
studying our grasslands, studying our forests, studying the wildlife communities, trying to understand how all of the living and non-living parts of our environment work together, how humans are impacting those systems, and how we can take our understanding of the natural world and our role as people in it to try and find sustainable solutions to the world's environmental challenges. My role here at the reserve is primarily to run public programs, so to take the research that's being done by the academic scientists and and get non-scientists involved in it, whether that's through field tours or citizen science opportunities or lectures with our scientists or other just opportunities to be out on the landscape seeing what science looks like. Um, a lot of what I do also is working with students. We have a, a thriving K-12 through education program that I run, serves about 7,000 students a year, mostly on on-site field trips where the kids actually get to visit active research facilities and active research experiments, do some of their own research, and go out on a nature walk into a part of the reserve that's not open to the public. We also do some, especially in the winter, in-school programs that bring our science into classrooms, especially at the younger grade levels. Awesome. That sounds wonderful. Um, it's so much fun. I love my job. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, I, I love just hearing about all the different programs that you offer for students and just for the general public. Can you tell me a little bit, just from your experience, what's the importance of outdoor education in terms of learning about climate change and these natural systems, bringing in that that kind of hands-on outdoor piece? Yeah. Part of what we love to do here at Cedar Creek is is really give people firsthand experiences outdoors. It's increasingly becoming the case that that folks are growing up without the opportunity to just spend time outside in nature, and that leads to this disconnect where it's hard to feel like your actions matter, whether that is in a positive sense or in a negative sense, on places that are far away from you and on processes that are hard for you to see in your day-to-day life. And what we've found over the last many years is that by giving people, especially kids, but not only kids, adults as well, an opportunity to, to just be outside makes a huge difference in shifting the way that they look at their role in the world. We've also found that kind of removing the middleman of a computer screen or of a lecture hall and, and getting people with their scientific expert tour guides out onto the landscape where where the participants and the scientists can be inspired by what they see to ask interesting and complex questions that might not have come up otherwise, that that really gives people a chance to take ownership of their own learning and take ownership of their own actions when it comes to being involved with things like changing their lifestyle um, to, to be less impactful on the environment, toward understanding their role in the climate cycle, toward toward kind of internalizing all of these things that the scientists care about and have been studying from a data perspective, being able to be outside and, and get your hands dirty and your feet wet, to breathe the air, to watch the birds, to ask the questions that kind of bubble up in those sorts of environments, that that really makes a difference for people that don't identify as scientists. Mm. What is the importance of our natural systems like prairies or forests, um, and their role as a solution to climate change. Yeah. A big area of research here at Cedar Creek 
is something called ecosystem services, the idea that there are all these natural processes going on all around us, things like the way that water flows through ecosystems and, and through the world and the water cycle, the way that nutrients get recycled in our soil and incorporated into plant tissue and then consumed by animals. We have all of these, all of these invisible hidden things that are happening naturally that when humans start involving themselves without understanding the complex realities of these natural systems, things start to break down in ways that have really important and meaningful effects for our day-to-day life. So when we don't understand, for example, the nitrogen cycle, it's easy to start over-fertilizing in our agricultural areas and in our home gardens, and all of that extra nitrogen has huge effects for natural plant communities. But unless we understand what's happening in natural plant communities without that nitrogen addition, it's really hard to see how runoff makes a difference or why mitigating runoff is important. And so what we try and do here at Cedar Creek is kind of go back to the basics in a lot of senses, go back to understanding really fundamentally the nitrogen cycle, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, and see how those work in relatively intact systems and see how they're changing over time. Some of that is natural changes. We have a big global change experiment here at Cedar Creek called Biocon, where we're manipulating things like carbon dioxide levels, rainfall, temperature, nitrogen, and we're trying to manipulate an experiment so that we can understand future conditions. Some of that work is happening on a very manipulative and experimental level. Some of our other work is just monitoring natural systems and see how changes are happening kind of as a result of of anthropogenic climate change or disruption to systems on a global scale. And by combining those two kind of very hands-on and more hands-off approaches, we really can get a good sense of both what's going on right now and, and what we need to worry about in the future so that we can take action, whether it's restoration or adaptation or mitigation, to try mm-hmm. and, and make the future something that we can look forward to instead of being yeah. terrified by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Channeling it into action and thinking about what we can do. It's so hard, especially Mm -hmm. because the problems are so big and and so unwieldy. Unless you really have a crystal ball um, to see the future, it's hard to know what actions now are important. So some of these experiments that, that really do manipulate things are crucial for inspiring change and behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is your inspiration for, for why you do the work that you do, whether that's, you know, a, a particular place or people or, yeah, what inspires you in your work? Oh, my goodness. That's such a hard question. I feel like <laughs> I'm inspired by so many different things. Um, a, lot of, a lot of my upbringing is what's brought me to this particular career path. I grew up in California in a very outdoorsy family. My family still gets together and goes backpacking for a week or two every summer. I I had this childhood of being out in the woods and out in the mountains and swimming in the lakes and rivers. And since I've become an adult, I've realized that that sort of upbringing is becoming less and less common even in a place like Minnesota where there are such abundant opportunities for recreation and opportunities to be outdoors, it's increasingly difficult for a lot of people to take advantage of them. And, and I want to give kids that opportunity. 
I also professionally, I'm a wildlife biologist. I did my PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology, and I learned through being in academia that there is this disconnect in a lot of ways between the science that's happening and the way that science is being communicated. Mm -hmm. So I'm really inspired to take kind of my own passions and, and my own skills in science communication and, and be that bridge and help non-scientists feel like they're part of the conversation mm -hmm. and feel like they have access to the knowledge that's being uncovered all around them, especially here in Minnesota, where there is such high-quality ecological research going on. I have this unique opportunity in my job to connect with people all across the state from all different backgrounds, from all different walks of life, and, and really get them involved with what is a global issue that needs global solutions. Mm -hmm. Well, what would you suggest for people who want to dive into that and, and find out more about maybe their, their local place or think more about those connections, wherever they may be to the places where they are and how that is maybe being impacted or can help impact the climate? What, what would you suggest for people who are just wanting suggest? to dive into that? Getting out in your local parks and, and finding park rangers and naturalists, mm -hmm. often the people that work in those kind of natural resources jobs have a ton of information, whether it's about the science behind something you're seeing or, or the natural history behind what you're seeing. And once you start personally connecting with a place, kind of this carpet unrolls in front of you and it becomes clear kind of what local groups, friends of your local park or the neighborhood association or your local Ollie class, what, what local organizations also care about that same place and might have opportunities for activism or for mm -hmm. sharing information or for gaining information yourself. Find your little outside spot and, and make it yours, I guess, is my advice. And I hope that that's Cedar Creek for some people. We all need a special outside place, and it doesn't have to be somewhere, you know, like the Boundary Waters that is enormous and wild and far away. It can be like your community garden. It can be the state park down the street or on the other side of the river. Like, it doesn't have to be huge. It just has to be yours. For our action this month, I want you to continue to think about your own climate story and how you can share about the people and places that are meaningful for you. What makes your home special? Is there a place that holds importance in your life? Whether it's a forest, your local park, or even a home, we all have places and communities that inspire and ground us. Share a picture on social media of a place that's important to you. Use the hashtag BandTogether and tag us on Instagram and Twitter. That's all for today. I want to thank Benji and Caitlin for joining me, and a special thanks to Effect Partners for their collaboration on this project. This podcast is produced by Climate Generation, a Will Steger legacy, with music by Laserbeak. For more information, visit our website at bandtogethermn.org and subscribe to Band Together on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to follow us on social media at BeTogetherPod on Instagram and Twitter. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. Who do you think we should feature on this podcast? Send us your ideas at bandtogether at climategen.org. Catch you next month, and thanks for listening to Band Together.